Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. We're continuing on in the series Diversity in Early Christianity. This series is focused on trying to look at the range of beliefs and practices that are found among various groups of Jesus followers in the late first century, but especially in the second and third centuries CE. In the process, we gain some good insights into the variety that existed among groups of Jesus followers. We also get insights into some of the struggles that went on between followers of Jesus that disagreed with one another. Today, we begin by introducing the main sources we can use to get at this diversity of Christianity in the second and third centuries. There are three main groups of sources that I want to briefly introduce today. First of all, we're going to look at the early Christian Apocrypha. Secondly, we're going to look at the Nag Hammadi documents that were discovered in Egypt in 1945. These documents are traditionally kept under the rubric of Gnosticism. Thirdly, we're going to look at the Church Fathers, or patristic sources. These are writings by particular Christian intellectuals who had very particular opinions about what Christian belief and practice should be. And so as a result, quite often they are attacking another form of Christianity that existed. But in the process, we get a glimpse through these sources into those forms of Christianity. We'll have to be very careful in the way we use the patristic sources. They are very uh, rhetorically combative. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. You can also go to my website at philipharland.com especially in the category of Apocrypha and Gnosticism, where you'll find further discussions of the diversity of early Christianity. I hope you come again. So today we're going to be moving on to some other literature as a window into different forms of Christianity. Last term we were looking at Asia Minor and focusing in on a particular region. And now we're moving on from a regional focus to a more literature-based focus in the sense that we're going to be using the Apocrypha and we're going to use the Nag Hammadi writings as windows into further diversity within Christianity to give us a glimpse into some of the other forms of Christianity that existed, especially into the second century and the third century. So today I want to talk a little bit about the Apocrypha and the Nag Hammadi writings and just introduce them a bit to you. And we're going to talk about what the Apocrypha is and just briefly introduce it so that we have a basis on which to move on to the question of what forms of Christianity do we encounter in this literature. We're going to talk about Nag Hammadi writings in the same way and uh, move on to the question of what forms of Christianity can we discern and uh, find in this literature. By forms of Christianity we obviously mean the types of Christianity people are practicing, including their worldviews, including their rituals, including their practices. And we're trying to plot out the different types of Christianity that existed in antiquity. So let's get into the Apocrypha, uh, first of all, and introduce some major concepts about what the Apocrypha is, so that we have a basis on which to use it as a springboard to move on to the question of what types of Christianity do we see within it. The word Apocrypha comes from the word for hidden. It came to be used, though, at times as a negative term. Now, we have an example of this in what is known as the Galazian Decree, which dates from the 6th century. And what this is, is a decree made by some church leaders 
But what's interesting about this document is it gives a gl glimpse into two things. First of all, this negative use of the word apocrypha by some leaders in this time. But on the other hand, it also gives us a glimpse into the huge array of literature that didn't end up in the New Testament, that didn't end up in the canon, but nonetheless were being used by all kinds of people. So here we have a list of writings that this, the people who gathered together to make this list felt were unacceptable and should not be used. The itinerary in the name of Peter the Apostle, which is called the Nine Books of Holy Clement. Some of the pseudo-Clementine writings that we're going to get into. The Acts of Andrew, the Acts of Thomas, the Acts of Peter, the Acts of Philip, the Gospel of Matthias, the Gospel of Barnabas, the Gospel of James, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Bartholomew, the Gospel of Andrew, several Gospels which some guy named Lucianus wrote, several Gospels which some, some guy named Hesuchius wrote, the infancy of the Savior, the nativity of the Savior, the shepherd of Hermas, the Acts of Thecla and Paul that we're familiar with. On and on goes the list. The Apocalypse of Paul, the Apocalypse of Thomas, the Apocalypse of Stephen, the Book of the Assumption of the Holy Mary, the Repentance of Adam. Many, many, many writings, all of which claim to be written by some figure from the past, apostles or well-known figures of the past, all of which are considered by scholars within the rubric of Apocrypha. Here, in a negative sense, by an ancient church leader, as Apocrypha as a bad thing, but by scholars, as Apocrypha as the writings that didn't end up in the New Testament is another way of putting it. So most of the writings that ended up in the that end up in the Apocrypha are examples of pseudonymous writings, of pseudepigraphic writings. The difficulty with the looseness of this category as scholars use it is that there's all kinds of overlap between different collections of writings. So the Nag Hammadi writings that we're going to talk about shortly, many of those writings are sometimes included in the Apocrypha. Not only that, but it depends on time as well. Some people would say we should use the word New Testament Apocrypha and early or early Christian Apocrypha to describe writings from the first three centuries only. And that subsequent writings of this nature should not be considered early Christian Apocrypha. But they still use the word Apocrypha to describe something written in the 11th century that's ascribed to James. These other pseudepigraphic writings from the Middle Ages are sometimes included in the collection of Apocrypha. So the, the term early Christian or New Testament Apocrypha helps to define it more closely as the ones from the first few centuries. Within this collection of writings that scholars labeled the Apocrypha, the early Christian Apocrypha, we have a variety of types of writings. Even from the list we read on the Galatian decree, you could see that. You have Gospels, but Gospels, as you know, are stories of Jesus. Sometimes they're infancy Gospels, which we have several of in the Apocrypha as well. So it's stories about the childhood of Jesus. A particular kind of Gospel that is quite well attested in the Apocrypha, but also in the Nag Hammadi writings we're going to talk about, is the Dialogue Gospel. A Dialogue Gospel is a category scholars have created to describe writings where the information is presented as though it's a dialogue between Jesus and some other figure where the figure will ask a question, Jesus will answer, answer it back and forth. So dialogue gospels. Beyond gospels, we also have acts. Now, acts are just simply the deeds, acts, actions of particular apostles. So they're stories relating the activities 
of certain apostles. This genre, in a way, owes a lot to one that ended up in the New Testament. The Acts of the Apostles is what it's called in the New Testament, the second volume of Luke. So there was an author back in the first century who wrote a story of Jesus, which later got labeled the Gospel of Luke, ended up in the New Testament eventually. He also wrote a second volume in which he went on after the death of Jesus onto the story of the church and told the story of Peter and the story of Paul. And then we call that the Acts of the Apostles, that document. Now that writing, which basically tells the early history of Christianity, you could say, came to influence subsequent ways in which stories about apostles were told. So the genre of the Acts actually starts to develop in a particular way. The early examples of these, what we call Acts, are a mixture of genres in a way. There's a sense in which they're much like the Greek and Roman novel, and they have things in common with Greek and Roman historiography, history writing. So that just gives you some sense of the background of the genre of some of the literature we're going to be using. Finally, as a type of genre, a type of literature you find in the Apocrypha, you have apocalypses. You guys already know what an apocalypse is from our discussion of John's apocalypse to some degree. Apocalypse, again, is a genre that scholars have defined. They use it to describe first-person narratives relating visions. And the visions usually pertain to end times, the coming intervention of God, the other world, the heavens, or the underworld. So journeys through those different areas. Need to say a few words here about where this Nag Hammadi collection came from. In 1945, there were a couple of farmers slash shepherds in Egypt near this little village of Nag Hammadi. And they like to go out regularly to find extra fertile soil to use to bring back to where they did their farming. And as they were digging in one area to find the special type of soil they liked, they hit upon a whole collection of writings from the 4th century. These writings were manuscripts written in Coptic, which was an Egyptian language of the time. Coptic is an Egyptian language that borrows a whole lot of terminology from Greek. Now, what's more important for us here is the significance of the find. Up until 1945, we possessed almost no writing by people that had previously been labeled Gnostics. We had lots of authors like Irenaeus, Tertullian, Oregon, the Church Fathers as they're called. We had lots of authors referring to Gnostic writings. We have a lot of people attacking what I'm loosely calling now Gnosticism, but we're going to have to problematize even that term. Suddenly in 1945, we have a whole collection of writings written by people who may be categorized as Gnostics. So finally, we have Gnostics speaking for themselves as a result of this find. So this find in 1945 is very significant for that reason. Let's talk a little bit about Gnosticism. We can't fully problematize the term Gnosticism and the concept Gnosticism right now. But let's, at the outset, say it's a, there's a problem with the term. In other words, we can't use it uncritically. When we do use it, if we are going to, we have to be aware of how complicated things are. Let me briefly state what the problem is. When you use the phrase Gnosticism, it sounds like you're talking about a monolithic phenomenon that you're talking about something you can describe and that here is Gnosticism. When it comes down to it, it turns out that what scholars have labeled and categorized and used the concept Gnosticism to describe is a huge diversity itself of forms of Christianity. 
But there is some truth in commonalities among these varieties of forms of Christianity that have sometimes been put under the rubric of Gnosticism. So we're going to have to problematize it more fully later, but for now let me just at least mention that. Even before 1945 we knew there were different schools within the type of Christianity that was condemned for viewing knowledge as the source of salvation. Remember Gnosticism comes from the word for knowledge. So the types of Christianity that were condemned by Irenaeus, by Tertullian and others as focused on knowledge. Those types of Christianity we already knew there were a variety of schools and differences among them and different leaders who had different views of things, even before 1945. But the discovery of the Nag Hammadi writings showed just how diverse even these different types of Christianity that have been put under Gnosticism are. As with all the documents we're using, regardless whether it's the Nag Hammadi documents, the Apocrypha, the New Testament, the anti-heresy writers are in the same group. You need to ask the question always in doing history, what type of writing are we dealing with? In light of what type of writing we are dealing with, how do we use it as historians? What type of information can we get from this type of writing? We don't just use every type of writing in the same way, do we? We always need to know what type of writing it is, and in some ways that's what today has been about. Just outlining for you the genres of literature and being aware of the diversity of what we have to work with there in terms of writings. With the anti-heresy writers, it's very important to ask the question, what type of writing is this and how can we use it? Back when we were dealing with the New Testament and other early Christian literature that had opponents in the literature, we used the writings in order to mainly focus on the opponents because we wanted to know, okay, we know the documents that ended up in the New Testament and even the ones that ended up in the Apostolic Fathers collection, we know they won out. They ended up being the standard. They ended up being the type of Christianity that was more familiar and ended up influencing other types of Christianity, etc. But we wanted to get at the other types of Christianity that are battled. What about the types of Christianity that do not win, from whom we didn't have literature? And we had to be careful about our approach, but nonetheless, we approached writings like Ignatius's letters, writings like the Joannine epistles. We used it carefully, trying to find out who are the opponents. What is this other type of Christianity that's being opposed? What can we know about it? And in the process, we had to be careful about the rhetoric, about the name-calling sort of characteristics of the literature. And we couldn't just take at face value what an author said about someone they were attacking. This whole scenario that you've learned so well from dealing with that literature holds especially the case with the anti-heresy writers with the church fathers who focused their attention on attacking certain types of Christianity. And we'll call them the anti-heresy writers here. And so what we learned about being careful about the rhetoric, being careful about the name calling, taking everything with a grain of salt, this all holds for how we need to approach the anti-heresy writers. But let me outline for you and give you an overview of a couple of the authors that we'll need to deal with, just so you have a sense of some of them. Irenaeus is perhaps the most important one when it comes to looking at authors who attack the types of Christianity we see in the Nag Hammadi documents. Because he wrote an entire work that he called Detection and Overthrow of the False Knowledge. So he saw followers of Jesus in his own time who were focused on the issue of knowledge, gnosis, in a particular way. And he felt that this was false knowledge. So we have Irenaeus writing an entire document 
condemning different types of Christianity that emphasize gnosis. In other words, he condemned what scholars traditionally call Gnosticism, but that we're being careful about how we express it when we talk about it. He writes in the second century, especially in the late second century, 150 and on especially. He ends up being a leader of a church in Gaul. He ends up in Lugdunum, in Lyon, in, in France. He's very well educated. Not only is he literate, but he can write about sophisticated philosophical literature. He's read extensively the types of writings that ended up in the Nag Hammadi collection. As a result of that, he was a good source for understanding what scholars have traditionally called Gnosticism. Let me just read to you a little from the introduction to Irenaeus's Against Heresies, just to give you a taste of how he opens up the work. And we're later on going to be reading more extensively in Irenaeus as an example of the techniques that are used by the anti-heresy writers. After we've read the Nag Hammadi documents, we're going to come back to Irenaeus. It's better to start that way. Now that we've got the writings by the people themselves, why start with the people who are condemning them? Why not go to the Nag Hammadi documents and see what people that believe something how they express their own beliefs before you turn to people who disagree with those beliefs and try and condemn them. But anyways, this is how Irenaeus begins his books. Some persons reject the truth and introduce false statements and endless genealogies which provide questions, as the apostle says, rather than the divine training that is in faith, 1 Timothy 1.4. They combine plausibility with fraud and lead the mind of the inexperienced astray and force them into captivity. Interesting strategy here. He's saying that these philosophies sound plausible and sound convincing, and yet they're fraudulent. That's going to be his overall technique in the whole book. They falsify the words of the Lord and make themselves bad interpreters of what was well said. In other words, they say, claim to be using teachings of Jesus. Thus they overthrow many and on the pretext of gnosis, knowledge, divert them from the one who founded and arranged this universe. Notice that phrasing there. He's already getting into his critique, isn't he? Thus they overthrow many on the pretext of knowledge, divert them from the one who founded and arranged this universe. Irenaeus believes that the God who sent Jesus is the God who created the universe. The people he's condemning here do not believe that, do they? Many of the authors of the Nag Hammadi documents and the authors of the documents he condemns believe that the creator of the universe is not the person who sent Jesus. That's a key difference between the two camps, actually. As if they could show something higher and greater than the God who made heaven and earth and everything in them. By persuasion and rhetoric, they attract the simple to pursue the quest and wickedly destroy them, inculcating blasphemous and pious ideas about the Creator and people unable to distinguish false from true. Error is not shown forth such as it is, for fear that when stripped it may be recognized, but is fraudulently adorned with persuasive attire and appears more truth than the truth itself, ridiculous to say, thanks to this external appearance to the eyes of the ignorant. In other words, the things he's condemning as false knowledge look very pretty and sound very sophisticated. That these types of Christianity that are represented in the Nag Hammadi documents that are attacked by Irenaeus are sophisticated in terms of education level and sophisticated in terms of philosophical ideas. We do not want people snatched away by our fault like sheep by wolves when deceived by the outer covering of sheepskin. 
wolves from whom the Lord warned us to keep away, those who speak like us but think otherwise. In other words, both camps speak as though they're Christians, right? Irenaeus would identify himself as a follower of Jesus. The authors of the Nag Hammadi documents, most of them, identify themselves as followers of Jesus. Therefore, after reading the commentaries of those who call themselves disciples of Valentinus and meeting some of them and having fully understood their teaching, I considered it necessary to show you, beloved, their portentous and profound mysteries which not all understand, because not all have lost their brains. He's being a bit sarcastic here. Thus you will know the doctrines and will make them manifest to all who are with you and instruct them to avoid the abyss of unreason and blasphemy against God. He focuses his attention on a certain kind of Christianity that focuses on gnosis, on knowledge. So most of all his works are condemning Valentinian forms of Gnosticism. Just one type. And we'll be seeing a variety of types when we look at Nagamati. But there's just a sample of the type of rhetoric we'll encounter and continue to encounter when we're looking at this sort of literature. Nonetheless, we need to make use of it in studying the diversity of Christianity in the second century. Let me just briefly mention a couple of the other authors. Hippolytus of Rome. There were debates in the past whether or not this document, refutation of all heresies, whether or not it was written by him or not. Most scholars now think it is. But this refutation of all heresies goes even further than Irenaeus. It actually uh, extensively outlines Greek philosophical thought, then argues that the followers of Jesus who are using it in a particular way are misusing Greek philosophical thought, and then it condemns all the different heresies and teachers that it outlines, including some of the ones that have a lot in common with the Nag Hammadi documents. So that's available online too in, in the library's Refutation of All Heresies. Tertullian of Carthage wrote extensively on all kinds of things. He wrote five whole books on Marcion. He thought this follower of Jesus, Marcion, was dangerous enough that five books needed to be produced. Tells you how important Marcion was in the second century. And we'll be getting into that extensively soon. Marcion did write writings, but they haven't survived to us. In fact, he wrote writings known as the Antitheses. Marcion, the guy who's attacked by Tyrone, one of the first to make a canon, so to speak, to actually outline a collection of writings that could be used as authoritative ends up being a different list than what becomes the New Testament later on. And so Tertullian writes these five books refuting Marcion. Tertullian begins the whole book by condemning Marcion simply by the fact that he's from Pontus in Asia Minor. Nothing good can come from Pontus is how the whole book begins. Let the name calling begin. And the stereotyping begins right off the bat uh, in Tertullian's writing. So here, let me read you a little bit of that. Irenaeus uses a lot of evidence, the guy we were talking about, but also likes the name call. Tertullian's a little bit more on the name calling side and uses a little bit less evidence, which makes it harder to get back to Marcion, but we're going to try. And Tertullian's going to draw on ethnographic writings like Herodotus, who writes extensively about people, live, the Scythians living in this area. And other ethnographic writings characterize people living in this area as barbarians. And so Tertullian's going to use this barbaric caricature of people from this region to say that there you go another barbarian Marcion here's how he begins the sea called Euxine the Black Sea or hospitable 
is belied by its nature and put to ridicule by its name. Even its situation would prevent you from reckoning Pontus hospitable. As though ashamed of its own barbarism, it has set itself at a distance from our more civilized waters. Strange tribes inhabit Pontus, if indeed living in a wagon can be called inhabiting. These have no certain dwelling place. Their life is uncouth, their sexual activity is promiscuous, and for the most part unhidden, even when they hide it. They advertise their sexual activity by hanging a quiver on the yoke of a wagon. If this wagon's a rockin', don't come a knockin'. So little respect have they for their weapons of war. They carve up their father's corpses along with mutton to gulp down at banquets. They eat their own fathers. We're getting into how we have to use this evidence, aren't we? You've got to be very careful how you use this information. Obviously, it is not historical information, is it? Even so, the most barbarous and melancholy thing about Pontus is that Marcion was born there. <laughs> Marcion tops these sexual perversions and eating your own father. More uncouth than a Scythian, more unsettled than a wagon dweller, more uncivilized than a Massagete. Uh, Herodotus extensively uh, outlined different peoples in this region, including the Massagetes. With more effrontery than an Amazon, Darker than fog, colder than winter, more brittle than ice, more treacherous than the Danube, more precipitous than Caucasus. More ill-conducted also is Marcion than the wild beasts of that barbarous land. For is any beaver more self-castrating than this man who has abolished marriage? What pontic mouse is more corrosive than the man who has gnawed away at the Gospels? Truly the Black Sea has given birth to a wild animal. So you can't use against Marcion and just read it as, oh, that's what Marcion did. Oh, yes, he ate his father. Okay, so Marcionite Christianity, they ate their fathers and they, no. I mean, that's the extreme case where it's obvious. But even in the less extreme cases, just like we were careful with the way we read the literature to get at the opponents, we need to be careful when we're reading Tertullian and other church fathers' writings about these different uh, forms of Christianity. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>